So I noticed the Prince Charles cinema has a season of werewolf movies going on right now. It's got all the classics are in there. I think they're doing it with some beer. I, I don't drink beer, so I'm not really the right person to know what it's in aid of. But I wondered what your favorite werewolf movies were that aren't an American werewolf in London. Because the obvious answer is it's an American werewolf in London. It has an amazing transformation. It's funny. It's gory. It can be quite scary. There are Nazis. We can ignore the John Landis aspect. But yeah, Vincent, what's your favourite non-American wealth in London? Well, I'm just going to uh, say, film? you know, I'm going to say, and this might get me thrown out before we even start properly, but I'm not that big a fan of an American werewolf in London. Hello? Hello? Oh, I'm Ooh. still here. That's that, that, that's a... <laughs> um, I... We have all opinions here, so any are, yeah. any are fine. Um, <laughs> if, the, if I was going to say a werewolf film that I will commonly go back to and i have enjoyed on repeat viewings i would go with neil marshall's debut wolf sorry dog soldiers Um, that i think is a really um enjoyable funny gory sometimes scary and very effective um werewolf film but i will also say speaking of the prince charles a couple of years ago i had the pleasure of finally seeing ginger snaps there which I also speak very highly of. So, um, so if I can have, I will say my favourite is Dog Soldiers, and I give an honourable mention to Ginger Snaps. Ah, oh, you bastard! Ginger Snaps was mine. <laughs> uh, mine was an honourable mention. It can be your favourite. Please tell us more about why you like it. I think the way it excellently mixes um, coming of age drama for Catherine Isabel and. Oh, I forget the other actress's name. Um, For the two young women on screen, it mixes coming-of-age drama uh, with the werewolf mythology, and I think it does that so well. And interestingly, there's three of the films, and each, while the quality isn't consistent, it manages to at least try something different with each film and has really interesting ideas going about it. Like, the second one is more of a i suppose girl interrupted kind of film rather than another typical werewolf flick and the third one goes back to like the 1600s or something and mm. it's an interesting mixture and if i'm gonna have an honorable uh, honorable mention i think i shall go for the howling which is quite a good little film yeah, the Howling's great. I will stand most Joe Dante films because the guy is is pretty consistently great, even if some of his films are uh, less than. Even if they have lower budgets or if they're you know just family films, I think there's always a good Joe Dante ness to a lot of his films. Uh, the Howling is probably my favourite non American Werewolf in London film, but I'll go with The Company of Wolves, which is a really strange. Um, fairy tale uh, lots of stories being told at once portmanteau like thing and it's very entertaining and it's very uh british 80s is the best way to describe it yeah i is that quite a good like thing? that one <laughs> um, as in i mean like it's like prominent actors of the 80s will pop up in in silly horrors a lot of the time which is always fun <laughs> mm. fellow i know i really doing is doing his um uh masters in research uh, dissertation on um like very early a uh, very a short space in the early 80s 
of um, werewolf uh, films. I think everything uh, sort of up to an American werewolf in London. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, I've I've heard a few things from him about uh, In the Company of Wolves and the Howling. And I really want to see, um, I think it's called Eight Pieces of Silver, which was at Sundance, and I'd hoped it would have made it to Fright Fest, but it didn't, which is a sort of uh, 16th, 17th century werewolf movie in America, and they're hunting a werewolf, and it's all wrapped into... um, folklore of the time it's, it looks really fun <laughs> uh, james you've been doing fantasia haven't you i have indeed thank you what do you recommend that you've seen um well i think there's an interesting little film called king knight from richard bates jr which is also playing at fright fest and that one's about um it's one of those typical stories about someone who's built themselves up and their past comes back to haunt them but in this way it's about a cult leader whose past as an all-american high school jock comes back to haunt him as as the 20th anniversary of their school reunion comes about and it's quite a charming little tale which is a very interesting look at the way people can put a version of themselves to be to fit more with societal norms and what's expected and it's quite funny not really uh gruesome or horrific just so it's an interesting choice for fright fest but it's it's a nice little watch i'd recommend um well you i know you've seen it russell but alien on stage is playing on there which I took the opportunity to rewatch, and it's still a wonderful little documentary uh, about this the little play stage play of hand to mine about Ridley Scott's Alien that somehow made it to the West End, and it's you. I don't think you'll have a better time than with that film. It's so joyous, and one I recently put out put out a review for was Hellbender from what's no from a trio of filmmakers who refer to refer to themselves as the adams family not that one and (laughs) it's about it's about this woman who's living with her teenage daughter alone in the mountains isolated from others and obviously the daughter's like no i this isn't enough i want to go out to, to the town i want to make friends my own age but the mother's keeping her there because well turns out their family are witches and it's a way of protecting the daughter as well as everyone else. And it's one of those films which is equally heartwarming and heartbreaking. And it really is a testament to DIY filmmaking. Um, those are really free I'd recommend at the moment uh, coming to mind. I definitely suggest seeking them out, really. What was the name of the first one again? That was King Knight. King Knight. That night I think it's playing, K. Uh, both K's. I think it's playing uh, the Sunday morning of Fright Fest. I believe oh, that's that when it's playing. Good. And I also think it's on the uh, digital one as well. So if you can't mm. do that, you can do it on digital. Quite appreciating that, that Fright Fest have had most of their lineup onto the digital side of things. Mm. So there's some ones that I can't catch that I'm going to go and watch there. Like, I really want to watch Crabs. <laughs> <laughs> Ironically, I probably won't, would not be able to manage the digital version because um, I start a new job on the 1st of September. So ah. sort of going to be 
uh, what's the job taken up with that uh, lecturer in sociology media and cultural studies at Lancaster University oh that sounds fancy <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure it won't be should we get into our episode why not yeah let's so, do it We've been rambling on for a couple of minutes now. We're Invasion of the Potty People, and this is... I don't know which episode this is. We've been doing this for a couple of months. Uh, I'm Russell. We, we've got James and Vincent, and we're going to talk to you about some of our picks of the month. They've got a deep dive into a studio that we kind of really dig, a review of a film that's kind of had a really torturous path to us, and a bit of news that Vincent's going to kick us off with. Vincent, what's your news for the month? Well, do you smell what's cooking in Little China? Good. I was um, prompted to bring this up because I recently saw Jungle Cruise, uh, which I enjoyed. Yeah, it's good fun. Um, and I thought, let's consider some other rocky material, namely Big Trouble in Little China. Now, the film with this title featuring Dwayne Johnson, don't worry, there was actually a connection here, uh, was first announced in 2015. This prompted groans and moans over not another remake, which we've all heard many, many times. Since then, there's not been, we've heard very little about it. However, um, just uh, recently, uh, Dwayne Johnson, as well as his producing partner, Hiram Garcia, have said they still want to go ahead and have described this project as somewhat like Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle. So it's a film that shares the title with a previous property um, and, ref and references that, but it also stands on its own. And what I think is interesting, and there apparently are problems with it being a legacy property, which suggests there are some complications with the rights. Now, I was uh, struck by this because it seems like an interesting niche in the current cinematic landscape where I'm familiar with uh, production, contemporary production that focuses on established intellectual property, franchises like Marvel and Star Wars, remakes and reboots like Wrong Turn, which I spoke about at length on a previous episode, <laughs> and also, according to Garcia, um, The Scorpion King, uh, which he described in a similar way, uh, which is interesting because I'd always thought of The Scorpion King as something of a, as more of a spin-off. But anyway... Another example would be these loosely connected continuations like Jumanji, because in the 90s we had Jumanji, there we've had Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle and Jumanji The Next Level, and I believe there is a third one on the way, or is that a fourth one? There you see, it's a matter of, so what's coming next? Oh, and there was Zarathustra as well. <clears throat> Not, or was it Zarathustra? No, that was something quite different. Zathura? Um, yeah, that's the one, Zathura. Yeah, so, uh, something in the middle. Um, so I was interested to know um, what you guys think about this. Firstly, about the possibility of a continuation. Um, and also, what are your feelings on the original Big Trouble in Little China? I mean, I think it's uh, quite a bit of fun. Um, some of its racial representation is eh, dated um, and some significant improvements would be needed. Um, so... And also, I think these these kind of problems could be fixed or addressed, at least, with the right screenwriters and director. 
And I started thinking, okay, so if there were a continuation of Big Trouble in Little China, starring Dwayne Johnson, who would I like to see behind the camera? And I thought Taika Waititi would have the sort of wackiness credentials for this project. Um, or maybe Kathy Yan, who directed Birds of Prey, because that film had a certain amount of wackiness, as well as this quite gritty urban setting. Um, so, yeah, I'd be interested to know, what do you think of the original? Would you like to see another one? And would you think? And who do you think would work as a director? And would you like to see a cameo from Kurt Russell? And most importantly, are you up for seeing The Rock laying the smack down on some demons? <laughs> An excellent wording. Um, I'm of the mind that not everything needs a follow-up. Not everything needs to be turned into a franchise. I'm happy with films which are just single, single solitary thing we can go back and enjoy. And But if something has to be done, then I'm far more interested to see what it would be like with an expansion of the world perhaps a sequel, perhaps something set in the same universe, but unconnected apart from a Kurt Russell cameo, as you say. I'd rather see something which pays homage to a classic and respects it than just a straight remake. And that appears to be what's happening here. And I'd be happy to see it. Um, who I would like to direct it. Now, I love Carpenter. He's my favorite director. I think he did an excellent job with the original. But with a sequel, I, yeah, there are some potentially problematic areas which can come from tales set within an Asian community in an Asian locale. And you'd have a director who isn't Asian handling the story. Um, so I felt for an interesting choice would be John M. Chu a director who has a visual flair who's had a varied career with directing romantic comedy crazy rich asians a couple of justin bieber documentaries action film with gi joe retaliation he recently did in the heights which was an excellent musical i think he's got he could bring a great style some excellent choreography and i think he could do something really interesting with a film like this and with dwayne johnson in the role now, Dwayne Johnson, I see him as one of those guys who, they're an established hit. They can just, they don't have to be a well-known character. They can just be themselves and sell the movie. And I think Dwayne Johnson has become one of those guys who's just playing a version of himself in films. But he gets away with it because he's such a charismatic presence. And I think we've seen that time and time again with say Jungle Cruise and even Rampage and and the Jumanji sequel. And I just hope that he would do something to differentiate this from all the other films where he's just in khakis and he's running around the jungle and he's just showing off all muscular like. And I think I think it'd be a fun time, and I could see a cameo from Kurt Russell happening. I mean, just recently, he's he's given his voice to um to Mark one um, episode of Marvel What If, which was indeed yes. Of so, I think he could come back for a film he was a massive part of, and 
well, if this ever comes about, I'd be quite interested in seeing it happen. Russ, what about you? Uh, I'm relatively easy about this being a thing that exists. Um, I quite enjoyed the original. I know it was not a hit, so it kind of amuses me that we've gone so far that even a film that wasn't a hit in the 80s is now an IP that they want to uh, bring back. I watched Village of the Damned, the John Carpenter film, today. Hmm. And um, I'm not really against any kind of remakes. And if John Carpenter can make one of the great remakes in the thing and a truly not worth your time remake like Village of the Damned, any remake is fine. Any continuation is fine by me. Uh, And I watched Jungle Cruise and it was perfectly entertaining for what it was. And uh, I quite like The Rock. I find him quite a endearing screen presence even if i'm not sure i think he can act i just think he's kind of this ball of charisma that i'm quite content to watch bounce around the stage at the stage the screen he used to bounce Um, around the ring (laughs) (laughs) so yeah so i have really no objections to this i quite enjoy the original it is problematic as so many films of the 80s are when uh, because i've covered a couple of them in my other podcast so many of them just have problematic elements you just kind of wish would not be in it but it's the 80s so it's like uh, some of them are now 40 years old so we've moved quite far beyond that um who to direct that is a good question i quite like your kathy yan suggestion because birds of prey was a lot of fun um trying to remember the name of her uh first film which i caught years ago before it got any kind of release dead pigs that was great dead pigs yeah dead pigs is uh chinese debut and it was great. It was really good fun. It was had all these kind of really quirky storylines going through it. So I think she's quite a skilled presence. I thought Sean Levy's work in Free Guy was about the level I'm for. So I should throw him in, even if, you know, he's not. He's probably the whitest person I could pick of all the <laughs> recent uh, directors. Um, I would go for someone like James Gunn because he's a lot of fun, but he's going to be wrapped up in various other things. Uh, yeah, just any director who has skillfully managed to weave an ip into being an enjoyable experience that's not over over created over talked over um over constructed i would very much enjoy this film if it just kind of emulated what i like about the original which is that it, it just feels like one film and it's done that that's what i think about the original it's just like pops up you have a fun time of it you ignore the questionable um stereotypes that are flung around and you leave um and one thing i really like about the original is that kurt russell's character is not really uh the swaggering hero that you'd expect him to be he kind of gets knocked out and he kind of gets pushed around he kind of isn't in the central fight there's other people fighting around him and i think at one point he does get knocked out in the uh last act and so some of the finale happens when he's unconscious so i'd happily have that kind of element but i'm not sure the rock would allow it because he's got quite a clear image for what he wants to create but all said, more than happy them to have a punt at this, but it amuses me that an 80s flop is now a must-watch IP. <laughs> That's the power of nostalgia, I guess. Probably <laughs> you know, Johnson and um, uh, Hiram are looking at, at probably, and Garcia rather, um, probably enjoyed that film themselves in the 80s and have always liked it and thought, wow, wouldn't it be cool to do our own version of that? like well hey we're super rich we can okay (laughs) we we know how to throw a lot of money around um it's i mean that's i think a a key part of the of our current cinematic landscape is we've got uh the people who are now making the movies are the 
are making the kind of films they grew up on. And I wonder if we were movie makers, might we be doing something similar? (laughs) (laughs) Sure. I can imagine that if I were to be able to make films, they would definitely reference a couple of carpenters and just, yeah, they definitely have that kind of eighties vibe to them. Some of them, because the films that I really like are some of the best works, the eighties, but yeah. I mean, if I had the potential to make my own film, I probably would have d- tried a decent sequel to The Mask by now. But knowing my luck, knowing my luck, it probably would have been Son of the Mask 2 or something. That's probably the end result. Brief sidebar. So I uh, covered on my podcast Son of the Mask and The Cat in the Hat for an episode because you know, I love pain. Um, and the... Cat in the Hat is directed by, I think it's Bo Welch is his name, and he's directed one film, but he's the production designer on so many things, so like Men in Black, Batman Returns, all these sort of Tim Burton, uh, Barry Sonnefield, uh, th- those kind of films. I think one of the Adams Family might be on that. And we're watching uh, a musical TV show called Schmigadoon, I think it is. Oh, that. And he does mm. that. So that's Ooh. something that I'm currently watching one a night. It's very entertaining. It's not horror at all, unless the idea of being stuck in a town where everyone sings like they're in a 50s musical is a horror for you, and I would be quite upset in that place. (laughs) I mean, it seems like a concept where, oh, this will be fun, but probably after the fifth song, you'll be like, oh, why can't I have been Friday the 13th? I wouldn't have had to endure this shit for so long. Yeah, or perhaps at that point you decide... I'm going to turn this into Friday the 13th <laughs> with whatever sharp object I can find. Oh, can you imagine Jason just singing uh, show tunes while hacking people up? I mean, yes. he's not a very vocal chap. It would be limited in its uh, range, I think. Maybe dancing. He could be, uh, you know, he expresses himself physically. So we just we extend this logically to... Um, yeah, Jason Voorhees dancing his way in a, in a uh, making his way in a um, dazzling dance of death and destruction. Jason or, goes to Broadway. There we I'd go. Watch it. Yeah, he or, turned, yeah, Jason. Jason takes Broadway. You know, he didn't quite. He was eh, only in Manhattan briefly. <laughs> <laughs> or my idea is, um, Jason's not a good talker. He can't formulate the words, but like the King's Speech or something. When he gets hacking, he suddenly has a voice of Michael Bolton just belting out, and he's found his inner voice. Ah, that's what the Friday the 13th <laughs> story really is. It's all about a man's um, quest for expression. Speaking of men, uh, James, you have a new film for us. <laughs> Love the segue. Seamless segue. <laughs> Jack Burton and the Pork Chop Express, and I'm talking to whoever's listening out there. Like I told my last wife, I says, honey, I never drive faster than I can see. Besides that, it's all in the reflexes. We're going to step back from men to just one man, and he's probably not as full as a person like Jason Voorhees would be. Now, if you go on Twitter... And you ask something along the lines of, what are some films from this year or the past few years I should probably seek out? Chances are you'll get quite a few responses telling you to watch The Empty Man. It's quite a, it's quite a film which has 
essentially gone into legend after being dumped in theatres and it seems to have gotten a cult following and with people giving it the intention and singing its praises after the studio neglected to to do do the bare minimum really but what is the empty man if you aren't aware well cast your minds back to the old time of august 2017 this was back when the empty man was filmed and at that time it received poor test scores from test screenings and a studio who you might remember called 20th century fox lost faith in the commercial prospects of this film so the director david pryor first time director as well he was told to assemble cut pretty much immediately after production ended so under this essentially a rush he delivered his final cut of the film and in it had six extra minutes in there he initially wanted to cut out and ever since then 20th century studios have essentially been holding on to it until it got quietly dumped into american theaters last october with complete with a poster which looks like the teaser poster which never got updated like the poster looks like the first of 40 you'd get from a marvel film really and it came to it came over here earlier this year it was quietly put on to rent it was quietly put on disney plus but it's the cult following which is really given this film the attention but what is exactly the film it follows james badgedale as this detective who is investigating the disappearance of these teenagers which is linked to this this legend referred to as the empty man now watching this film it's clear that studios were worried i can't see how they could have solved sold 137 minutes slow burner to the masses while releasing a trailer which represents the film as it is and it's a real shame because the final project is i found to be such an absorbing piece of horror something which is fully confident in its vision and it goes down so many avenues which are quite unexpected and rather inspired from essentially a 20 minute opening prologue which is a really good short film in its own right to an absolutely haunting ending which has just stuck with me ever since i've seen it there's i think yeah there's probably a few too many ideas this would probably work better as a mini series rather than a film running for 137 minutes um I can only theorize how Pryor's preferred edit would have changed things, how those six minutes would have gone. But I was just so taken with this film. And I think James Badgedale is so exceptional in the lead role. I don't think you're going to see much like it, to be honest. And it's going to linger with me. And I really hope more people give this a try. And this is one of those cult followings which really builds out. But... um, what did you guys think did you did you um were you taken by it as i was was the runtime of it much uh what are your thoughts confession time i didn't actually manage to see this i had planned to we actually had a conversation about this um through our chat about i was deciding shall i watch the empty man or shall i watch um pan chan wook's thirst um i ended up watching thirst 
um, and then actually completely forgot about The Empty Man. But I tell you what, <laughs> if I had any qualms about seeing it, um, James, you have really put them to rest, and I will be watching that movie um, first opportunity I get. Although I will say, Thirst is amazing, <laughs> just for the record. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, Thirst is, is a great Park Chan-wook film, and uh, if we're recommending a film, as well as The Empty Man, go off and watch Thirst. It's a lot of fun. It's probably one of my favourite vampire films. I, I thought The Empty Man was uh, interesting. I I liked some of it, and some of it I thought was baggy, and some of it I thought... You said there were probably one too many ideas. I, I agree with that statement. I think the opening is my favourite thing about the film. The first 20 minutes is just, as you say, an incredible short film in itself and uh, really well done. And I wasn't quite sure where it was going. And then then when I realised that that was not the film, that that was just the prologue, it was really interesting. Um, it just feels slightly uh, baggy for me. But I think that the most horror films that kind of stretch over the two hour mark, I feel that there's a, a cut in there that could be two hours and I'll, I'll love it. But what I really like about this film, it's probably the best example I've seen of uh, modern American uh, folktale being told. So there's things like The Slender Man and there's all these various other stories that are kind of emerging because of the internet and because we kind of just talk our way into having some kind of folk horror, which isn't there, but it now is. And this feels like it's a part of that. It feels like part of its charm is that it's exploring what that means to create uh, essentially a horror in itself so yeah i i think it's too long but i think it's compelling and interesting and i can't believe it's a studio film because um it's like no studio film i've seen except maybe you know ariaster stuff over a24 this feels like it should be released through a24 and it feels like it might have been uh put into production because they saw this the success of some of the a24 films that have come out um so I definitely think it's worth a watch, especially if Disney Plus, and I think Disney Plus is one of the weirdest streamers, streaming services out there because it's got all the Disney stuff and I have it because I've got kids. So there's things like Bluey on there, which is a delightful uh, kids TV show that we're watching a lot of. But then you've got things like this and Ravenous and and uh, Deep Rising, which is one of my favorite 90s uh, crap fests because it's just really good fun. But it's, yeah, there's that kind of like side of Disney Plus that's for adults and it, it feels weird, all the stuff that's on Disney. And this feels very weird because it is dark and strange and and unforgiving. It's an unforgiving film. You have to just go with this. So um, I don't think it's for everyone. I think I liked enough about it to say people should watch it. And I, I um, would probably have liked two or three films to come out of this, like to take two or three of the ideas and give them a film. Like I'd love the prologue to have been an hour and 20 minutes of a film and more development at the start and more time in the horror of that. Cause it, it's, it's really one of my favorite horror openers I've seen in a long time. It's really, really grabs, grabbed me immediately. Um, but yeah, I, I, yeah, I recommend this too. Wow. I'm double sold. <laughs> next time, time i promise i will time. i will have seen it and uh, uh, i'll report back next time <laughs> but it's very long i mean first is very long so if you're going to choose a very long horror film go watch first but if you have time for two very long horror films and frankly we all keep being gifted the gift of time in our houses 
<laughs> so you're going to find yourself at some point with a lot of time and a free evening. And in the same way that Doctor Sleep is rewarding, is a rewarding watch. I think The Empty Man is, even if it's not like Doctor Sleep for me, which is now, now my comfort watch. That's fair enough. Uh, as I to go back on the Disney Plus thing, um, I went on another podcast to talk about funny ravenous, as you said, and we we're discussing how weird it is that. Disney Plus is now the place where you can have a good day to die hard right next to a goofy movie. <laughs> and the star, the, and they're both available in the search. The star section is uh, <laughs> really changed it for, I mean, you can watch um, Doc McStuffins and The Walking Dead on the same surface. It's so strange now. Well, it's strange, I think, because of... Um the thing that Disney is best at, which is branding. I mean, if you think about it, there's equally, um, there's an equally diverse range of material um, on Netflix. I mean, Netflix has got, you know, the most intense horror film and the most um, innocuous family fare. Um, but of course, Disney has this very strong, um, we have this very strong cultural sense of what it is and what Disney means. And Disney know this as well. This is why they've, you know, that company has survived and prospered so much to become now, I think, the largest media conglomerate in the world. Um, and I was surprised when I when I when I saw that. Um, well, I wondered how is, is they going to put all this other uh, more um, in inverted commas adult material onto Disney Plus? But you know, very simply, just put it under this star banner. So it it's it's Disney, Jim, but not as we know it. Um, what I find especially uh, pleasing about this range of stuff they've got, both from Disney's own back catalogue and, of course, um, the stuff they've got that they got from the Fox Vault, um, 20th Century Studios, is a lot of it is older um, because one of the problems with um, Netflix especially is most of its material is quite recent, so like from the last 20 years, whereas on uh, Disney Plus through Star, um, there's a whole bunch of I've been using Disney Plus particularly to catch up on stuff that I missed in the 90s, um, like Ravenous, like uh, Dead Presidents, which is a great heist post Vietnam film. Um, also, Metro, um, a movie that um, from the, from 97 with um, Eddie Murphy that I always remember very clearly. Um, the very the first date I had, um, uh, which I had my very first kiss at the end of it. We were considering which film to see. Metro was one of the options. We went for Jerry Maguire, which I have, for, therefore, very <laughs> fond memories of. And Jerry Maguire is a great movie. But I'm glad I finally got to see Metro. Thank you, Disney Plus, and thank you, Disney Plus, for giving us the Everyman, uh, the, the Everyman, <laughs> um, the Empty Man. Um, for every man is empty, as we know. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, I'm very glad it's there and that it is what it is. I mean, we can say, you know, Disney's evil and um, represents sort of you know, many of the worst work practices and excesses of um, capitalism. But at the end of the day, if we are going to consume the content, then we may as well enjoy the content. Yeah, I agree. And and the other thing I like about streaming is that Ravenous and The Empty Man were both considered flops on their release. And now with how streaming platforms work, it doesn't really matter how successful a film was in cinemas. There's a place for it and you can go off and find it and it can get uh, a reputation, say, online, for example. So 
Uh, the Empty Man is one that I see on Twitter fairly often being recommended. Ravenous is one of the ones that was recommended when Star was first launched on Disney+. Plus. There are films that pop on Netflix that were not hits at the time and now are hits because they're on Netflix. And all these various other things. And and it is the one of the aspects I appreciate of streaming is that because content is now so freely available, or mostly freely available, some stuff isn't. Um, what is, you can if, if a film didn't work at the cinema, it can find another life. It can find its second or third or fourth wind. Indeed. You're right. And uh, speaking of streaming, our deep dive this month is on a uh, company that has really had a good time on streaming. It's really been an effective user of streaming services. And I'm, of course, talking about Blumhouse. Now, Blumhouse is a name that we all know and some of us will love. We, we all know that they have a reputation of horror fans. Uh, so they were founded in 2000. It takes its name from the founder, Jason Blum. And alongside A24, it's probably one of the few production companies that is a brand in of itself. So it's one of the few that I can think of that is big enough that you can sell a film as a Blumhouse film. Uh, it didn't start with horror. It only broke into horror in 2009 with the release of Paranormal Activity, which is the first of several franchises that the company has been responsible for. And there are non-horrors that have a Blumhouse name, so... Uh, that beloved film, The Tooth Fairy, with, uh, I think it's The Rock. Oh, yeah. So, looping him, back around to our news, The Tooth Fairy featuring The Rock is a Blumhouse film. There's a great documentary on Netflix called A Secret Love, which is about uh, two women who have like a lifetime together and then sort of reveal themselves when they're older that they are, in fact, in a relationship to their family. It's a really beautiful documentary. So there is stuff in Blumhouse's um, body of work that's not horror, but they... We know and love them because they're horror. Um, and what sets out a Blumhouse film and makes this, the company so distinctive is that they keep their budgets tight. So they have for a long time had a budget on a film of three to five million. I think it went up to nine million for The Invisible Man, which even if you think about it is mightily cheap given what The Invisible Man is, all the stuff it does, that's mightily cheap. And they invest in filmmakers who have experience but are not established. So a lot of their filmmakers will have made two or three films before or will have had a career and and are now making a comeback through uh, this the through Blumhouse or they are established writers who have take who are moving on to directing. And the final thing that they have is they give relative freedom to their creatives so they can go off and make the film they want to make and Sometimes that means that you get a really good film and sometimes it means it, it doesn't work. But you don't get a situation like The Empty Man at Blumhouse. It, you don't get them messing around with the films that they get made. Uh, this creative freedom paired with a modest budget has, has seen them produce films at a remarkable rate. So you get five or six Blumhouse films a year fairly often. If not more, they might even have more now because they're releasing, uh, for example, four on Amazon Prime in October, they'd fall last October on Amazon Prime, and there's many more that keep churning out through them. And uh, while, not, again, not all their films are good, with that kind of release rate, 
you're very soon likely to hit upon a cracking watch from the company. And this includes paranormal activity, which I'll get into probably at the end. And they have <clears throat> built several franchises over the past decade, which includes Insidious and The Purge. And we saw the last or the latest Purge film recently in The Purge also, also had a TV show. So those are three series that have really paid dividends for them and for us horror fans. Because if you like Paranormal Activity or Insidious or The Purge or like all three, you get a lot of stuff out of it. And they've also had horror hits like Happy Death Day, Sinister and Unfriended. And I'll just say Happy Death Day is one of my favorite uh, high concept horror films of recent years. And they have worked with many of the most exciting genre directors currently working. So that includes last episode's subject matter, Mike Flanagan. He did Oculus, Hush and Ouija Board Origin of Evil with them. It's James Wan who has uh, managed to launch probably the most horror franchises in recent years. And for them, they did Insidious. They revitalized M. Night Shyamalan's career by him going off and making The Visit. And then he made Split and Glass. And whatever you might think about Shyamalan and his films, it's exciting that he's kind of got past that really dire part of his career. And he's now making kind of interesting genre pieces that I'm sort of agnostic on, but I'm happy that they exist. They uh, were responsible for Jordan Peele's first film, get out and and more on their kind of oscar success in a minute and chris landon who did happy death day one and two and made freaky and i watched freaky the other month and it was all the fun and it's all the fun and of course lee one l who did upgrade and the invisible man and one of the insidious films they have all come through the blumhouse model they have all been given modest budgets and gone off and made some of the most interesting horror films of recent years and Blumhouse have had a hand in Oscar winners like Peel's Get Out, Spike Lee's Black Klansman, and Damien Chazelle's Whiplash, which are really interesting films in in their own right. And again, cheap films. I like it where they're making nice, affordable films. And sure, not every one of their films work, and I'm not going to talk too much about Fantasy Island, Truth or Dare, or the Martyrs remake, or, you know, the Gallows series, which I haven't seen, but looks naff. Um, and those are all, you know, best avoided. You know, if you're really curious, you can watch Truth or Dare or the Martyrs remake. But go and watch Martyrs instead. It's a lot more not fun, but distinctive. <laughs> and all these kind of, uh, I guess, creative misfires are worth it when they revitalize the Halloween series or they give us the heebie-jeebies of Creep or they make us laugh through the violence and Freaky. And that's why Blumhouse is a name that I will always keep an eye out for. I mean, I'd rather take 10 films from them than an overpriced studio. I'd rather they spend 50 to $80 million on 10 films. And two or three of those will be great films. And they understand the medium that they are working with. They release films on streaming and in cinemas. They will tailor the release of the film so it fits. So they've got some of the most interesting Netflix films or Amazon Prime films. But they're also, you know, holding back Halloween kills till this year so it can get a get a cinema release touch wood touching all the wood i can because i really want to watch halloween kills and like they balance nostalgia in the genre so we've had new black christmases halloweens the crafts i quite liked the black christmas we got it's nowhere near as good as the original but it is interesting for me and they also have innovation in there so there's unfriended and cam which are really interesting explorations of our relationship with computers and the internet and and the lives we currently live so i'll end this by saying in Jason Blum, I trust he 
Blumhouse is a name that I will always be interested in. So, yeah. Uh, what are you? So I have two questions for you two, and I'll answer them at the end. Which is, uh, what do you think is an essential Blumhouse watch for, for people? Not one that you necessarily love, but you think to understand what a Blumhouse film is, you should go off and watch this film. And of course, what is your favourite of theirs? And uh, James, do you want to go first? Sure thing. Uh, now, uh, I'm trying to work out which film would fit under essential and which film would fit under favourite. Because <laughs> I've got two which I could swap around either way okay i'll go with essential now if both of these films are from people who were known for their acting roles more than they were for than they were for being behind the camera but both the but the films i'm going to talk about showed their potential for directing and got them onto bigger things and the first film i'm going to discuss is lee wanell's 2018 film upgrade so have you seen venom okay now imagine that but technical <laughs> technological and better okay so a brutal mugging leaves our lead played by logan marshall green paralyzed and his wife dead what are you gonna do he's ready to give up on life of course it's uh, such a horrific thing until this billionaire inventor offers him a solution he gives him an implant, which is called STEM, voiced by Simon Maiden, and it offers um, Logan, Mar Logan Marshall Green's character the ability to walk again. What, what it also offers is a way to communicate with him. And what STEM offers is a chance for vengeance against the men who committed the mugging and took his wife from him. Now, what you have is this high-tech throwback to revenge action flicks of the 80s, complete with the trope of fridging the wife. And it is so impactful, so well done, so fantastic to watch. It feels like the start of a fantastic career for Lee Wanell. Ultimately, this is about one man who's trying to cope with grief, and it's excellently portrayed by Marshall Green, because no matter how many people he can kill, he no matter how he can walk again, he still lost his wife. He can't get over that. He's ultimately broken inside and and will this change anything that's what that's what the film is for for you to find out but it also has some excellent physical comedy in i think he's channeling bruce campbell in evil dead 2 because what stem can do is control logan marshall green's body during fights so while his body is being an action badass logan marshall green's face is reacting so shocked at what he's doing at how it's beyond the skills that he knew and the back and forth between marshall green and maiden is just fantastic they are such a wonderful pairing and this goes back to what i say it makes it feel like a better version of venom complete with how much logan marshall green looks like tom hardy and i think it's an excellent film that deserves to be watched and uh, and looping back to an earlier conversation, it played at 2018 Fright Fest, and I can't imagine how well this much has gone down there. Now, a film which I don't know if it played at Fright Fest was 2015's The Gift, which is directed by Joel Edgerton. You know, the guy, but the guy best known for oh shit, what's he best known for? Okay, he's known for Bright, but he's known for other stuff as well. Is he known for Bright? I haven't. 
what do I know him from? Um, I, I know, know him, him from, from uh, Exodus Gods and Kings, where he's Ramses. Um, he's also um, the CIA agent in the abysmal Red Sparrow. We're um, really pulling out all the, all the uh, bangers yeah, for Joel Edgerton. Some, oh, no, okay, here's a good one. Um, he's, um, he's really good in the very good movie Black Mass um, about uh, James Whitey Bulger and his FBI contact. Uh, Boston gangster movie from a few years from 2015. Yeah, um, Edgerton plays the agent, the FBI agent in there to Johnny Depp's uh, Whitey Bulger. So yeah, uh, that's a good one to check out. I'll go with It Comes at Night. That's, oh yeah, that's is, oh yeah. But I probably most know him from uh, something like The Great Gatsby, or in fact The Gift. I yeah, I most kind of know him from The Gift because he's pretty great in what he does with it. And you know what? These are all better suggestions than Bright. Oh, dear God, I went for that. <laughs> Never seen it. Don't have any interest in it. Yeah, you don't need to. Um, <laughs> racism, but with orcs. That's all you need to know. So, yeah, um, alien nation, but fantasy. <laughs> exactly. Oh, yeah, I was talking about the gift. <laughs> My bad. Of course, um, yes, back in track. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the gift from director Joel Edgerton, known for better films than Bright, um, the film is about this husband and wife, played by Jason Bateman and Rebecca Hall, who are going through a rocky patch with their relationship. They're trying to revitalize it, but their life is their lives are upended by the reemergence of a quote unquote friend from Jason Bateman's past, and he comes looking for friendship. At, but he's also got he also seems like there's something wrong, like he's so awkward. What's he hiding? But there is a horrifying secret he's holding on to. And what this film does is it tackles issues such as bullying and consequences, consequences which can come from lies and the ideas that some people just really aren't capable of changing. And it's such a fascinating little film. And I think the real dynamite factor in this film is Joel Edgerton, because he's a triple threat giving such an unnerving portrayal as uh, Gordo, this overly friendly face from the past. And he also writes a script that's quite taut and smart. And he has such confident direction, which makes you feel like there's something off. There's some underlying tension all throughout. And it really becomes apparent during the stunning final act. And I think it's a really good thriller. That's exactly what the title insinuates. It's a gift. And I would really recommend both of these films. And go see them and just think, well, what what actor's going to do a great directorial job next? Who knows? Um, Vincent, what about you? Um, well, when I was looking over the list of um, Blumhouse films, um, I was going for those that are sort of, you know, strictly produced by them. Um, but as was already meant, but if, but if we expand that slightly, I would, I would give a particular honourable mention shout out to a uh, to Black Klansman, which they were involved mm. in, although it's not a strictly speaking Blumhouse production, because um, I think that's a masterpiece and was my personal top film of that year. But when it comes to an essential um, Blumhouse film, and I got in trouble on our chat because I picked this one first, um, <laughs> I would pick the essential Blumhouse film is Get Out. Now I'm still here, and the rest of you can stay here as well. No one needs to actually get out. <laughs> ha ha. <laughs> um, I think, um, and what, and the re and I mentioned Get Out 
um, as this essential film because it is not a film I love, but it is one that I admire and respect. Now, in terms of as a, what makes it essential Blumhouse is it was the directorial debut of Jordan Peele, um, a comedy actor and writer, um, best, best known for TV previously. Um, but uh, this was his, as I say, his debut, and it was put together under Blumhouse's um, requirements, you know, limited budget, but Peel had creative control. Um, and uh, it would go on to get multiple uh, nominations. It was up for Best Picture, uh, one of the very few horror films to be up for that. Um, and it did, did indeed win the Oscar for original screenplay. So yay, Jordan. Um, now, I think this film is hugely important <clears throat> from the perspective of racial representation. Um, that uh, We're all aware of the irony that we are three white dudes talking about race, <laughs> but that is perhaps why I emphasize Get Out. It needs to be seen for what it says. Um, I'm ex- I expect most of the people listening have seen it. If you haven't, do. And if you have, well, see it again. It's filled with references that likely have more of an impact on people of color, but I mean, and so if a white guy like me doesn't fully get it, maybe that's a good thing. I mean, my issue with the film is I think in its final act, it goes too bonkers. Um, For the first two thirds, it's quite, it's seriously crawly with a whole lot of microaggressions and wince inducing put downs. I remember I watched it first in the cinema and then I watched it again with a friend on Netflix. And this friend, like me, is a white bloke. And we were both cringing at points during the film, especially during the party sequence. Um, so as I say, my issue with the film is purely dramatic because I think the um, it's, I remember when I first saw it, it was setting itself up in a particular way. And I thought this is going down some kind of modern slavery perspective. That's really interesting. And then it kind of does that in the final act, but it's like, wait, sorry, what? Um, so it kind of lost me there, Jordan. Um, having said that, I am completely on board with its politics and its representation. It's described as being this is, um, you know, the film which shows the intrinsic, the inherent racism of so-called post-racial um, white liberalism um, in America. Um, you know, story concerns this um, young black guy who goes with his white girlfriend to visit. Um, her parents. And uh, as the tagline says, just because you're invited doesn't mean you're welcome. Um, but it's filled with, as I say, these weird um, microaggressions along the lines of, oh, I would have voted for Obama a third time. <laughs> right. Um, or, you know, with that physique, you could, be, okay, could, could you stop, please? And it has um, many fascinating references, particularly the sunken place. Um, I believe there's a uh, part of the BBC's Inside Cinema series has um, a whole um, video essay devoted to the idea of the sunken place and the position of people of colour. So I think it is a film that uses the horror genre beautifully to present um, social issues like that. Um, So yeah, that would be my recommendation for the essential um, film uh, from Blumhouse is Get Out. Um, my personal favourite uh, Blumhouse film, aside from Black Clansman, which we don't really count, is <laughs> is The Invisible Man, already mentioned. And hey, it's Lee Wanell again. 
um, who, after uh, directing Upgrade, which I've been meaning to see for a while, and James has reminded me I need to, um, would go on to direct The Invisible Man. Now, this also has a political message. Um, this one's in relation to gender rather than race. And I suppose very technically it might have been different and maybe more, even more interesting had it been directed by a woman. But having said that, I remember hearing an interview with um, our beloved uh, Mike Munzer from The Evolution of Horror. Lee Winnell mentioned in an interview that when he was writing this, he went through the script with his uh, lead actor, Elizabeth Moss, to ensure the female input so that Moss was contributing to the script saying, well, this is more um, from the female perspective. Um, but what I especially like about The Invisible Man is it sticks to its guns throughout. It's got this kind of far-fetched, outlandish present, uh, outlandish um, premise from the start, you know, clues in the title. Um, but I think that its, it, it's, um, its high concept is neatly interwoven with the theme of relationship abuse and gaslighting. Um, it does a fantastic use of negative space. I mean, if you guys have seen a movie where an empty area in a room is more terrifying, please let me know what it is. Um, but it's also heartbreaking with what happens over the course of it. Um, if you've seen it, and I say restaurant scene, you know what I mean. Um, now, I've heard of uh, that, as I was saying, um, sometimes... It can be tricky if, um, uh, when a film is exploring a particular political or social issue, can it overplay this? Can it become um, preachy? And I think in the case of The Invisible Man, absolutely not. The politics and the commentary are perfectly interwoven with the narrative. And at no point did I feel, feel that the film stopped to say, oh, by the way, here's what we're really about. At every point, I was thinking like, oh, God, that's horrible. <laughs> Um, except that having said that at the ending when I was going, yes, and I have heard, <laughs> yeah, I have heard um, of a non-literal interpretation of the ending. Um, I don't buy it. I think I take the ending as what I see. Um, I think what we see happen is what does happen within the narrative, but it is an interesting consideration. Um, perhaps ironic that in a film concerned with invisibility, I do trust what I see, <laughs> um, but it is a stunning film. It's brilliantly directed. Elizabeth Moss is fantastic. I hope to see more of her as a leading performer. Um, and yeah, it's intelligent. It's beautifully put together and it's bloody terrifying. So yes, the invisible man, see it. Boom, tish. So my two co-hosts have picked what I think are a truly fabulous quartet of Blumhouse uh, films and to add to your collection to watch i'm gonna give my two and my essential blumhouse watch is halloween and while i uh, don't love everything about halloween i love what it's doing so halloween is a sequel to the first halloween that ignores everything that came since so all of the weird twists and turns the series went have gone out of the window the rob zombie films don't exist uh, Halloween H20, while fun, isn't there, and neither is its rather terrible sequel. It's just a sequel, a follow-on to what came in the first film, and it re-explores the world that has followed 40 years since. And I I really enjoyed it. It's When it works, it really works. When it's following the shape through 
uh, rooms and through houses and through streets. It really works. And it's really interesting for them to take on Halloween and, and kind of fix why it kind of gets broken all the time by different creatives. And they're going to make another two of these. So I think it's, it's an essential Blumhouse watch because A, it, it shows what they do with established horror properties, which is they kind of take them and they either do a legacy sequel or they'll take it name only and do something interesting and over to the left field like Black Christmas, which a lot of horror fans will end up by. But you can have two Black Christmases, guys. <laughs> um, <laughs> and also that it creates a franchise for its own. So this trilogy is going to be a Blumhouse trilogy. This is the Halloween for Blumhouse. And I'm so excited for Halloween Kills. I really want it to work. And this is uh, the great this is a great starter for what I hope is a, is a delicious um, free courses of a meal. And my favorite of theirs of the ones not mentioned, because I think get out is a masterpiece. I think Lee one two films are remarkably good. The uh, I'll call it the lobby scene in the invisible man is, is staggeringly good action. Wonderfully shot. Uh, yeah. I think that the four they've covered already are probably one of them is my favorite but of the ones not covered my favorite is the first horror they did actually it's paranormal activity because i remember being sat in a cinema and being utterly terrified by that film and so paranormal activity is is a simply it's just a couple of filming their bedroom every night because there is something visiting them or in particular one of their members and from there it spirals but it never leaves their house and it's all filmed as a found footage film and again modest in budget but that doesn't limit its ideas and its scope and it led to two of my favorite sequels of horror i really like the first three uh paranormal activity films i think they're all really fun and interesting and yes yeah the sort of repetitions but i don't mind repetition horror that's kind of i quite like a horror where i know what i'm gonna get and and with Paranormal Activity, you kind of know what you're going to get. And they have some inventiveness. They use some different cameras. They use some cameras. They have a camera on a, on a fan that goes around at one point. They have uh, cameras for babies' rooms, which is is uh, terrifying, having a child and having a baby monitor. I don't have the camera one, but I have a baby monitor. And every now and then it does scary stuff. That's good horror. So, yeah. So, my favorite of theirs is Paranormal Activity because I just remember how terrified I was watching that, how... Uh, thrilling it was to watch a horror that at that point scared me because that came at a point when we were stuck in the malaise of torture porn we'd had far too many saw films we kept getting hostels we kept getting sub hostels and i think hostels not a great film and so you get a sub version of that and it's not great and so i think that paranormal activity shows why i kind of dig this company why i dig blumhouses because they kind of have an ability to just revitalize horror. They kind of have that ability that more than any to just be like, here's what horror should be. Here's how fun it can be. Here's how exciting it can be. And I'm sure at some point we'll talk about A24 because they, they're kind of the other tract of horror right now. So on the one hand, you've got your Blumhouse, which is kind of studio fair, but made uh, fast and cheap and excitingly. And A24 is kind of your indie art house fair. And there's, there's, very different kind of films come from two but yeah my two blumhouse watches are halloween because it just shows how they can master nostalgia into their own shape and paranormal activity because it was genuinely thrilling when i first saw it 
and I really want to watch it again, actually. <laughs> I remember watching Paranormal Activity much the same as you did, Russ. I remember going to see it and, yeah, be, yeah, being properly petrified. Like, <laughs> exactly. Um, I haven't seen any of the sequels, but um, I will at least go back and rewatch the original. The sequels are fun for what they are. I, yeah, once you get a sequel to Paranormal Activity, you have to kind of accept that. <laughs> and the other thing I love about Paranormal Activity is it's one of the rare found footage films where I can convince myself that what I'm watching is real. Oh, yeah. In the same way mm. that something like Blair Witch Project, I can convince myself that what I'm watching is real. So, yeah, I think that's when, for me, found footage really works, is when I can be like, this actually is happening, this actually happened, what I'm watching is real, as opposed to the more obvious answer, which is, it's just a film. <laughs> Whereas I didn't watch Paranormal Activity until, like, 2012, 2014 on BBC iPlayer. So I still had a quite a tense time with it, but, oh, I do wish I could have seen it in cinemas. That must have been oh, horrifying. Packed cinema, and you'd had couple of weeks of hype around it it was one of those films that captured the internet before you know twitter and stuff like that but it really captured the internet and got a reputation and yeah mm. played at my local cinema and i remember just being a bit blown away by it <laughs> and i concur with halloween as well that's a uh, great fun you won't get the baby and you won't get me There you are. Uh, and we're going to end our episode with a trio, trio of recommendations because we like to end with you giving some stuff you can go off and watch or read or, you know, things you can enjoy. So, James, you're going to kick us off with something old, aren't you? I am indeed. Now, My Something Old is a film which I believe the three of us all watched as homework for the current series of The Evolution of Horror. <laughs> it yep. is the Chuck Russell's 1988 remake of The Blob. And, okay, this is a difficult film to find in the UK because it's not available to buy on Region 2 DVD or Blu-ray. It's not available to stream or rent from any of the services. Um unless you want to watch it unless you want to import a copy from another country on to use on your multi-region player your option is going to youtube or finding it online just something like that and it's a real shame because this film oh my god the thing wasn't the only excellent remake to come out of the 80s and this is proof what chuck russell does is he takes the 50s drive-in classic and he updates it for the current for what was then the current time frame. So you no longer have the oh shucks feeling for characters who the ones who have a bit of a quibble with authority, but ultimately work together to take down dun 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 the blob. No, no, no. What you have is human what you have is um humanity not working together to against an outside threat, but humanity combating against 
the meddling of power-hungry governmental figures hmm. who care more about weaponizing such a destructive force as opposed to human life, you know, something people with empathy tend to have. And what you have in this film are such well-formed characters. You have relationships worth caring about. And you and it makes it all the more heartbreaking when you've got the titular blob going on a vicious rampage, which is a step up from the 50s film where it was like 15, 20 minutes of the blob doing stuff. And this is, no, the blob is the priority and it is earned. And it really helps that there's such excellent practical effects, which shows absolutely horrifying kills. Like, I mean, the blob in its acidic form, just oh, melting humans. And you, you see that happening and it is so well constructed so, in such a wonderfully pra practical way. And this tense feature holds nothing back. And sure, Kevin Dillon has an awful mullet, but <laughs> this is a remake which, for my money, easily eclipses the original. And if you haven't seen it, you need to hop onto YouTube. You need to get this shit watched because Jesus Christ, it is excellent. Hopefully, us mentioning it here won't uh, result in it being taken down from YouTube. <laughs> ah, shit, that's a good point. Yeah, I was, um, yeah, I really enjoyed it as well. I mean, I watched both the original and the remake for, as you say, homework for the evolution of horror. And I hmm. agree with you with what you said, James. The remake far surpasses the original, which I found to be seriously creaky and clumsily obvious. But the remake, mm -hmm. I thought, was knowingly silly, but surprisingly smart. And as you say, it was commendably revolting in um, terms of its um, uh, effects and its body horror. Um, mm. I managed to you know, bring in some generational differences, Cold War tensions, along with its gelatinous terror. So yeah, I was very pleasantly surprised. I agree. And what I most appreciated about this film was that I actually felt something for the characters. I, so Frank Darabont does the script uh, and I really felt for these characters and I was really upset when some of them died, particularly in the first half. There's some deaths. I'm like, oh my God, I really like that person. I thought that person was going to make it at least to the beginning of the third act and they don't. And it's, yeah, this is a really, if you want an argument for why remakes are good, this is it because the original blob is naff. It's just, just yeah, it's of its time and it's very 50s. A great theme song. Go off and listen to the blob 50s theme song because best thing about the film. Yeah. But this, this remake is just top tier and I had uh, fun with it and I also got an impact from it. It has an impact that I not always feel with horror. So yeah, this is a recommend for me too. Uh, and I, this month, am going to do something new. So I watched uh, a grand film called Werewolves Within, which is a uh, actually a game adaptation, which is, I guess, the most surprising thing about it. And what this is, <laughs> is that a small town cop uh, goes to a, a um, mountainside town where there's some dispute over a new pipeline that's going to be built. Basically, they can get some money. 
but also half the town doesn't want it. Cue nightfall, the power goes out, and then there's a werewolf going around that's starting to attack people, and they don't know who it is. Uh, if you haven't played the game, you might have played this as like a party game. I definitely played version of this like a drama game. It's not dissimilar to Amongst Us, which I played in one of the several lockdowns we've had, and that was great fun. There are many versions of this, and to see it play out in a story that's kind of Agatha Christie, but a bit funnier. It has a nice Agatha Christie vibe to it, but it's also quite funny. There's a good cast of comedians in this. Uh, so you get the like of Sam Richardson, you get uh, Michael Chinus, you get oh, who else? Harvey uh, Gillian, who is in What We Do in the Shadows, which if I don't bring up in one of these episodes as a recommend, maybe even as a deep dive, because that TV show is top draw. And uh, the standout is uh, Milana uh, Vuntrub, who is uh, great. She's really great in this, really funny. Uh, and it's directed by Josh Rubin, who did Scare Me, or Scare Us, whichever one it is. It's on Shudder. I haven't watched it yet, but I hear that's great. And this is just a really fun comedy with a really dark sensibility. I'll be honest with you, it's not a great werewolf film. There's not a great deal of uh, actual on-screen werewolfiness. But that's kind of fine. It's just quite an enjoyable tale of paranoia and dread and how really when terrible things start happening, that community spirit isn't there. Uh, so I had a lot of fun with this film. I heartily recommend it. It's available now on digital uh, platforms. You can pay for it. I think I paid like three pounds for it and it was very much worth watching. Uh, I had fun with this. Yeah. Yeah, I really enjoyed Werewolves Within, and my highlight was Sam Richardson. I thought he was excellent as the kind of the sweet guy who wants to everyone to be a bit more neighbourly, and he's just reacts so hilariously when this unfolding madness happens, and he's just shell shocked at discovering a body, and he sells the heck out of something like Heavens to Betsy, and. <laughs> it, he's wonderful and this is such a great time to be in this film is such a great time to be in the company of and i double that recommendation because it's a it's an excellent comedy vehicle even if the werewolf stuff agreed it's not a top tier wolfiness action yeah watch it as less of a werewolf film and more of something like knives out but with mm. a more uh tv comedy cast and more fur presumably and a bit more fur yes <laughs> <laughs> yes um i've not seen werewolves within but uh we were talking about werewolves earlier and now it all comes together i see what you did yeah. there very very cunning everything kind of connects up we always end up looping in all these different things oh, very as good. if Lupus. as if there's a modest Lupusy. plan in place a <laughs> modest one would you, modest. would you say it's looping together like a full moon <laughs> or are you making... almost a full moon almost a full moon yes mm. or creating some sort of pack of ideas <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's move on vincent what's your recommendation for the month for well, my howling recommendation is not a movie. Um, I recommend. I'm recommending the novel Bone China, written by Laura Purcell. Uh, Laura Purcell has um, uh, also previously wrote The Silent Companions, The Corset, and more recently 
the shape of darkness, which is not in any way related to the shape of water, just so you know. Um, what uh, Purcell does is she takes the traditions of Gothic literature and then imbues them with 21st century sensibilities. So from a gender perspective, she's far more creative than the standard tropes of hysterical woman, controlling man, grim house. Now, it's not that those elements are not there, but they are expanded on, developed and mixed with other aspects. Thinking about it, it's not dissimilar to what we were saying earlier about uh, Blumhouse. The Blumhouse knows how to um, bring in filmmakers who take established tropes and devices and reutilize them in interesting ways. <clears throat> um, Bone China has a split narrative. It's got two stories taking place 40 years apart during, it's never 100% clear when it's set, but I would say you know, 19th century. Um, and they both, both of, the, of the narratives involve women with complex histories. Um, one of them is to do, one of the narratives concerns um, a young woman who is helping her uh, father, who's a doctor, um, treat consumption, um, treat um, patients of um, <clears throat> tuberculosis in this um, grand Cornish home, um, somewhat like you know Mandalay or your standard Gothic house on a cliff. Um, with the controlling man, and it's all from the woman's perspective, who realises there's something weird going on, but of course no one believes her. Um, and then we've also got another um, narrative 40 years later where a nurse comes to the same house um, to care for the woman from the other narrative, now much older, um, and there is something very peculiar about the China. Um, you know, it's uh, a long time ago, I was in a state, uh, I know I didn't, I um, saw a stage production of a play called The Bright and Bold Design, which um, is a play actually about plates. And weirdly, Bone China is to an extent also a, a novel about plates and cups, but in the same way that uh, it's not really about that, because in the same way that Jaws is not really about a shark. Um, it is a seriously compelling um, because so both of these women encounter some strange and ominous events um, and it is seriously compelling seriously creepy read also and here's the academic in me going the end of the book actually includes some questions for discussion it says the setting is incredibly striking from the stoic beauty and cavernous caves how does Purcell use different senses to conjure the haunting atmosphere of the novel. Um, our protagonists struggle to determine what's real and what isn't. Do either of them truly believe in the strange events? Could the novel be read without these? And so on. Um, so what I would recommend is that you guys should read the novel as well. And then we can discuss the questions in a future episode. It'll be like a recorded seminar. What fun! <laughs> One for another episode. <laughs> I, I will give it a read. It sounds interesting. It sounds mm. like a really interesting uh, novel. Yeah, I do like the sound of that. And <laughs> questions. Oh, this is like being back in school, homework. Yeah. Sorry. It's, it's, the, it's you know, I'm an educator. It's what I do. I, um, <laughs> you know, the seminar never ends. <laughs> <laughs> Beware of the blob. It creeps and leaps and glides. Slides across the floor, right through the door, all around the wall, a splotch, a splotch.
So there you have it. We have uh, two films and a book for you all to enjoy. And the book has some additional stuff to it. And we'll come back to that at a later episode where we've all read it. And we're going to discuss uh, those questions. Uh, we've also, this uh, episode, given you six films to watch from Blumhouse, as well as one on Disney+. Plus, and there's many other stuff in there. Everything we've mentioned is worth watching. And it's all good fun. <coughs> And all it leaves us to do is say where you can find us. So, James, where can people find you? Um, I'm on Twitter and Letterboxd at RoddersJ04. And my website is thereviewingrodders.co.uk, where I have articles and film reviews. I, At the moment, I'm covering the Fantasia Film Festival, and I'll have some Fright Fest reviews um, linked up in there as well. So check it out if you're bored or something. Uh, you can find me on uh, Twitter and Letterboxd and Instagram, uh, Dr. Gain. That's G uh, D R G A I N E. Um, you can also find my reviews on uh, the Critical Movie Critics, as well as Vincent's Views, um, which is my own uh, blog review website, um, and also reviews on Snakebite. Um, indeed, I shall also be providing some uh, reviews from Frightfest um, c- coming soon. Um, so that's where you can find me when you're looking out for the big trouble in Bone, China. <laughs> <laughs> and you can find me on my other podcast, which is not just for kids, which is the podcast that looks at family films throughout the ages. And currently I'm wallowing in the 90s and it's gloriously good fun. My fellow co-hosts have been on. Vincent came on to talk to me about the ti- about Titanic. And he'll be back on in a later episode for Terminator 2 and The Last Action Hero. And James has been on to talk about The Mask and Liar Liar. And one of those is absolutely worth a revisit. And the other one is is 90s problematic. <laughs> <laughs> and I have many, 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 many other exciting episodes coming up for that. And yeah, just come listen to all those. They're good fun. Or you can find me on Twitter, Russ Loves Movies. I'm on Letterboxd, but I never know what what my thing is there so come find me in a box maybe and again i will have reviews for fright first not for my own but for other sites so i'll retweet those and yeah just come and chat i like to talk to people sometimes and we will be back next time with even more recommendations even more deep dives and definitely a review or two for some amazing films